And kia ora koutou and welcome to the weekly Hoon, the uh, Zoom webinar that we do on the Kaka with Peter Bale. Peter, how are you? I'm very good, Bernard. It's, uh, it's, it's a very interesting week. I'm, I'm dying to talk about the international news and we've got, uh, we can also talk about gin again if you want to at the very end. All this talking about gin makes me feel like going and making a gin and tonic. Actually. Yes, but, uh, that... but we can do that at the end of this rather than at yeah. four o'clock, I think. Yeah, no, it's 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 that stage in the in the world at this time of the year when looking around at the news, you think, gee, what I really need is gin and tonic. <laughs> Tell us about Ukraine, and uh, we pr praying, of course, that um, nothing really kicks off. But what's the story at the? Well, I think it is going to kick off, Bernard. I mean, I think it, one way or another, it has kicked off in a sense, in that um, you know Putin already took the Crimea in two, in, in two thousand and fourteen and paid very little price for that it's never going to go back i mean you will have you will have seen that uh, one of the commanders of the german of the german navy a very senior defense um official had to resign last week after admitting you know pub in a public speech in india that uh putin needed to be respected more and that uh crimea was never going to go back to ukraine and and as sensible as that view is it's it's not really what you're supposed to say at the moment um and also you've got this very odd position at the moment where uh, it sort of highlights the weakness that Germany, the weak position that Germany is in, in this whole debate as a member of NATO, but also profoundly dependent uh, on, on Russian gas. So I, I just think there's a whole bunch of interesting things that we've discussed before. The Nord Stream gas mm. pipeline. I see the Americans the, have come out and said, if there's an invasion, they're definitely not going to let the Nord Stream um, 2 thing go ahead. That's right. Well, I, so let's start with this. Okay, we, we yeah. can, we, there's a couple of issues in play here. One is the history, which is what I wrote about this week for the spin-off, and I, I'll share that with everybody. Secondly is the gas issue. And that, you know, I also addressed in my spin-off thing this week, the, the, the famous concept of whataboutism is when you say, God, that Bernard Hickey's a complete bastard, but Peter Bale's really bad as well. Or in this case, you know, Churchill versus Stalin or something. Or you say, why isn't anybody paying attention to the Yemen? That's what we should really be att paying attention to instead of the Ukraine. Ukraine really does matter. Well, Russia's attitude and approach to Ukraine really does matter. You know, since 1947 or 1953, depending on which, which of the... Um, of the post-war conferences you think about. You know, European borders are not supposed to be changed, or world borders really are not supposed to be changed by violence. Uh, and really what Putin is trying to do is redraw the borders of Europe, redefine the end of the uh, fall of communism, the end of the, you know, the, the, the agreements that were reached after the fall of the Berlin Wall. But it is also true that George H.W. Bush showed a great deal of hubris uh, uh, with with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of communism, if you remember, you know they were sending what they called Bush's chickens to uh, Russia. You know Russia was had food problems and there were American frozen chickens being mm. sent to keep the Russian. You know it was a pathetic scene, uh, and particularly pathetic under under Yeltsin after after Gorbachev, of course. So the Americans did exert a heavy price on that and. A line I came across last week, which was, I think, fits with this, which is Churchill said something which was, uh, in victory, show magnanimity. Mm. And, you know, we really didn't show, the West really did not show magnanimity towards the former Soviet Union and the, and the Russia that emerged. But also, all of these Eastern European countries, and I think most people now here know I used to live in Romania and work in Romania as a journalist. And at the time that I was there in the early 90s, the... Romanians were absolutely desperate to join NATO. Mm -hmm. You know, they started you know, when they could least afford it. They started buying Apache helicopters and they started uh, establishing American bases there and so on. Of course, that did lead them to also having bases for the extraordinary rendition program as well. So it takes you down some dark paths. But you know, Poland, Czech Republic, uh, or as was then Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, all want Romania, all wanted to join NATO for extremely good reasons. Uh, because they didn't trust Russia. They didn't trust what was emerging. And, of course, in Putin's world, that means that they breached an agreement uh, to go not one inch further than, than Berlin. And yeah. so he's, he's trying to, you know, he's trying to redraw the map of Europe uh, in, in, a rather bold, in a rather bold way. Um, one, one of the most difficult aspects of it, of course, is that he's already won to some extent. You know, he's, he's in, in almost constant contact with, uh, with Joe Biden. He's had a summit with Joe Biden. Uh, the Secretary of State, is, um, Anthony Blinken, is meeting uh, Sergei Lavrov in, in Geneva. 
the United States has written now to and handed over its, its sort of written answers to these questions from Moscow, which are all about, you know, we expect you to pull back to the boundaries of 1991. It's just not going to happen. So it's it's a very interesting dilemma. And, and the gas one is a really interesting one, Bernard, and that is where I would argue that the United States has a not entirely innocent um, innocent view on this. I mean, Joe Pompeo, the previous Secretary of State under Trump, who, you know, not coincidentally uh, comes from Texas, um, uh, is, was deeply anti the Nord Stream gas pipeline, partly because what they want to do is, is sell American gas to, to Germany and to Europe. So, you know, the, the, the Americans are not entirely uh, without economic reasons for wanting to um, limit the limit the German dependency on Russian gas as well, as well as, you know, the strategic, the strategic concern. Of course, the other thing that people forget, and I was reading something about this the other day, that um, Angela Merkel's decision after the Fukushima disaster in, the, uh, in, in Japan to turn off all German nuclear power, you know, is turns out to be both a tragedy and a critically moronic thing to have done in some respect. I mean, if you look at the level of dependency that France has, which is like well over 50% on nuclear, um, nuclear has to be, one, one imagines that in places like Europe, nuclear has to be part of the solution, particularly a low carbon solution, and certainly uh, a solution that is less dependent on, on Russia. And of course, the other, the other thing about Nord Stream, about the Russian depend, about the uh, German dependence on, um, yeah, thank you, Julian, about 70%. Yeah, I think I did know that. Um, the, um, you know, Nord, Nord Stream is the result to some extent of the historic linkages between Gerhard Schroeder, the former German chancellor, and Putin. And uh, I'm afraid that Gerhard Schroeder was up to his neck in Putin's activities when Putin was the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg and started on his uh, personal mission to become, a, to become an oligarch. And Schroeder, it would appear, uh, funneled or allowed to funnel significant amounts of money to Putin, um, particularly uh, in his role in supporting Siemens, the German multinational. Um, you know, Schroeder, I think, is the chairman of the Nord Stream uh, board. And I think, as we've discussed before, weirdly, about half a dozen of the senior executives at Nord Stream are former members of the Stasi, the East German secret police. Uh, and of course, if you remember, Putin was, I mean, we're talking about conspiracies here. Putin was the KGB chief in Dresden at the time of the uh, collapse of the, of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Berlin Wall. So it, there's all wheels within wheels within wheels here. Um, and so know. let's let's say he does invade hmm. um, partially or fully. What... Uh, what sort of fallout is there going to be inside Europe um, in the energy markets? And well, I think the fallout in the energy markets will be immediate and uh, profound, and our oil will go up. You know, in you know, just our, our petrol prices will go up quite dramatically. It's quite interesting. The um, Europe and the United States are working with Qatar, Australia, and other um, uh, LNG liquefied natural natural gas suppliers to look at how they can redirect some of the some of the shipments that um, move into thanks Bernard that move into uh, you know Qatar obviously is the world's largest largest um, gas producer those enormous LNG ships that go from there from Port Hedland in Australia um, but what I realized recently is that they are generally sold in the spot market and some of you know are, they do have some long-term contracts but often that gas is diverted uh, you know, even while the ships are at sea heading to one market, they'll get diverted, diverted to another. So it'll be very interesting to see uh, how much that can be used to offset any restriction of, of Russian gas supplies into Germany, which, of course, then feed through into large other parts of Eastern Europe. Uh, I, I think we can almost certainly assume that Russia will cut off Gazprom's um, pipeline to Ukraine, at least. You know, I think that will be that will be, you know, apart from the cyber attacks we've already seen, you know, a few a few little problems with the Gazprom lines into uh, into Ukraine will probably make winter there rather rather chilly. Yeah, it could be a cold cold yeah. February in Kiev. Yeah, it's also I mean the UK in a sense is not as vulnerable as any of the other as as most of the rest of Europe in this apart from of course France with its its nuclear uh, position, but um, you know the UK also is a big importer of LNG from Qatar and uh, and elsewhere. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there, particularly because you know. LNG prices will spike. So, yeah, so it's got a real, a real knock-on to inflation, to energy prices. And, and then as, as you and I have 
know from, from our old lives and working at Reuters, people say, oh, conflict is already priced into the markets, uh, particularly bond markets and commodities. It never is really. The, the, the actuality of things really happening turns all of, you know, there's some something really strange about, and, and I never believed it when people would say this or that is priced in. It never fully is because the impact and when we now, when we then find out exactly how aggressive Putin is going to be. Now, in my personal opinion, uh, and we may have discussed this last week, so forgive me if I'm boring you with uh, with what we discussed last week. My personal opinion is that he's highly likely to take a strip out of what is called no, no, Novi Russia, which is the uh, border, the heart, the border with Russia down the Dnieper River. And so he will, I think, push the the Russian border from Ukraine westward to the Dnieper River thus linking mainland Russia with Crimea, so it solves a bunch of Crimea's problems. He gets to claim uh, the Ukrainians' most important naval base, and also he gives a, a, a real fillip to those uh, militias, the separatist militias in Donetsk uh, and, and Luhansk province, Luhansk province um, in the east of Ukraine. So that, that's, that's what I would suggest is, is most likely to happen. I'm not sure that you will see a fully-fledged military strike on uh, Kiev itself. I just, I find that hard to believe because that doesn't seem to me to be the kind of slightly gradualist approach where Putin operates, where he, I think it would be extremely difficult for the West, certainly to push back militarily on uh, taking a sliver of the, you know, on the on the uh, eastern side of the Dnieper River. So, uh Biden has said there will be serious consequences. Yeah. If, um, Putin but then he invades. also, then of course, as we discussed, you know, then he also said, but that might only be a, you know, as a result of a major incursion, incursion as opposed to a marginal incursion. And and you've clearly, as we saw from from the the, the German defence guy, the naval guy who had to resign after those comments about about Crimea, that you know Germany is not fully on board with this. You know, it's it's prevented. I think it's Lithuania from sending. Um, Sending um, offensive weaponry across across Germany into Ukraine, uh, a British flights of offensive weaponry had to bypass Germany because you know, Germany wouldn't give it permission to fly across, and Germany has very kindly sent the Ukrainians some helmets. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, next up some chocolate teapots for them, I think as well. Yeah, but um, the Americans have threatened to cut off the Russian financial system from the rest of the world by cutting them off from SWIFT. Yes, and, and I don't believe that'll happen. I think the Europeans are not going to let that happen. They're not really, they're the not ready to go that far. The, the Europeans are a little bit exposed here because they've got some of their own banks, particularly Italian, some of the German banks that have, uh, and the French banks have lent substantially to a bunch of uh, Russian companies inside mm -hmm. Russia, and they would be, in a way, um, uh, shoot, shooting European banks when they shoot the Russians. Absolutely. It was very notable. So yesterday there was a conference in Italy of uh, or, or, or an online Zoom conference between, and which, at which Putin spoke, between Russian and Italian business people. The Italian government asked the business people for it not to, not to go ahead, and any the um, the Italian oil giant pulled out of it. But you know, there's there's a lot of a lot of private interest in that, uh, and of course, in the UK, you've got effectively the City of London running a um, you know a, a legalized money laundering operation, both for Putin personally, and uh, and for all of the oligarchs, little li oligarchs, let alone a place to educate their children, a uh, uh, a friendly court system to fight their to fight their oligarchy and battles, you know, you name it, including defamation against journalists. Yeah, so it looks like he's going to get away with it, and the oil price goes to a hundred bucks, and um, yet again, um, the Europeans have tried to get away with defending themselves against Russia by hoping the Americans turn up and not spending mm. any money on mil the military and the Germans who for lots of understandable reasons have haven't really uh, um, bumped up their military to be very strong must then ask themselves the question okay we can't really rely on the Americans anymore maybe we really need to have a strong military in Europe uh, and the, the, the European Union is unlikely to be the place it happens. Mm, so you mm. see yet more nationalist um, opinion and uh, drive within Europe, which could be dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, 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 there was a terrific piece, or not a terrific, but I think an absolutely disastrous piece by 
uh, a British columnist called Simon Jenkins the other day, the former editor of the Times, who essentially said, you know, Ukraine is a, is a country far away of which we know little, which, of course, is what was said when uh, when Germany inv <laughs> invaded the Sudetenland. You know, and there are, we, you know, our, our parallels here should not just be the Second World War, but we do know what happens with appeasement. Effectively, Russia has been appeased with the takeover of, of Crimea. You know, yes, there are historical connections and all of those things. Um, you know, the Crimea at one point was even even um, contemplated as a Jewish as a Jewish homeland by Stalin as well. Uh, but um, you know, the redrawing of borders is an extraordinary thing, and China is watching this very closely. There's a terrific cartoon in the Economist this week with um, Taiwan and Ukraine as uh, little kids hiding from the, from from a bear and a and a dragon. Yeah. Um, you know, and this that's is the thing: this is, if the Chinese can see that Putin gets away with taking Ukraine, maybe they can get away with taking. Well, Taiwan. absolutely. No, no. I think this is this is exactly what you know. It's a critical reason why um, uh, she and Putin are communicating so heavily at the moment. Why they're sharing information on this, and and both of them want to test the Biden administration. And so far, I think it's largely been found wanting, really. I mean, it's, it is a time for rhetoric. I mean, there's a, there's a headline today on the on, on Reuters news agency talking about, uh, what is it saying? Russia, Russia and the US keep door open to Ukraine diplomacy. And I don't actually believe that the door is open. I think that, that you know, there is, there is talking going on, but I don't believe that Putin is actually wants any of wants or wants to embrace any of the answers that are coming out of that. Um, you know, these, these, these written, written proposals or written responses that the United States has sent um, you know, do not, which are all about, you know, winding, winding NATO back to 91, remove, even removing nuclear weapons from, from European territory. It's not going to happen. What's, is there anything domestically that's driving Putin on this? Oh, absolutely. You absolutely. Yeah. You know, it, it is a, it is a, you know, there's, you know, he's, he's in a sense, as much as one can tell, relatively unpopular, uh, relative to his, to his previous popularity, but also we've seen, you know, I, I've occasionally described him as the, as the most cynical person in the world. Um, and, and, you know, this is a person who launched into war in Chechnya, uh, the second, the second Chechen war after Yeltsin. And, um, uh, gosh, I'm sorry. Somebody's people are telling us we're boring them to death, but this is this isn't this isn't normal. Um, and nothing could be further. Nothing could be no, further, no, this further, is, uh, further I, from the, the truth. The truth. reason I'm interested is that a when a war is started, yeah. that has effects on everyone. Hundred dollars a barrel oil. We're all worried um, uh, about what's happening with inflation. And I just cannot see the global economy continuing to roar ahead in the middle of a no, war in the middle of Europe. That's right. That's right. So I think it, it is all about this, the impact of the reality of what will happen, even if you don't think about what happens in five or 10 years. You know, when, you know, five years ago, they took they took Crimea. What's happened since then? Quite a lot, actually. You know, it's, it's emboldened them, emboldened them. You've got, uh, you know, the, 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 the Royal Navy running exercises just off the Crimea and having... Um, you know the Russians strafing, strafing just in front of their their uh, ships. You know there's a lot of provocations going on there, and it could get extremely ugly. I and mean, it's very interesting to see the Swedes, the Finns, and all of those Baltic states also beef, beefing up because they know that whether it's as someone mentioned last week, Kaliningrad, the little finger of Russia that sticks, or nub that sticks out into the into the Baltic. You know these are really interesting pressure points. So I think you're right, Bernard. And to all those who think it's boring. Uh, we can go back to talking about housing right. shortly. So, sometimes, sometimes it's useful to... Uh, yeah, and we'll move on to, to Jen at the end. Yeah. yeah. Well, talking still about overseas stuff, um, Boris Johnson. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, How long getting... is he going to last? This time next week, is he still going to be here? Well, he, he, keeps, you know, he, he keeps saying he's going to be toughing it out. And, uh, you know, what's hilarious about it is that these, you know, these really are kind of uh, boarding school twerps or... Uh, some of them are some of them are kind of grammar school twerps as well, you know. Calling it Operation Red Meat last week, which was a which was a part of Operation Save Big Dog, which is equally ridiculous. Um, you know, they they have no idea how ridiculous they're looking. But you know, Operation Red Meat was to toss a whole bunch of red meat to conservatives who might um, you know might might pull behind Johnson um, over attacks on the BBC, attacks on migrants, and the possibility, in fact, of cancelling a very, very important um, national insurance uh, increase. Tax which increase. We, tax and increase, the latest which is effectively heard, a tax increase, yes. And the latest we've heard is that they're going to try and force people who are unemployed to take jobs. 
Absolutely. Yeah, no, that works brilliantly, doesn't it? Yeah, they, they, I think they could, why don't they do, follow Russia's, uh, follow the Stalin thing and get and put them in the gulag and get them to dig the White Sea Canal, which yeah. was a metre too short, too, too, too shallow once they, once they launched it. But the, the, the thing about Boris that I loved this week, uh, you, people might not know a, a, a fellow old Etonian called um, uh, Rory Stewart, who uh, probably was a spy, uh, walked into, into Afghanistan, uh, probably worked for MI6, um, is an MP, stood for the leadership. And he said that a couple of things this week that I thought were just absolutely fabulous. Um, and he described Boris Johnson as a terrible prime minister and a worse human being. And what he was... And, what and he, he's in the Conservative Party. And he's in the Conservative Parliament. Party. Yeah. But it was, you know, it was a really effective piece because essentially he was saying the Conservatives have created this monster. They've supported him. They knew he was a, li knew he was a liar. And he said, 30 years of celebrity made him famous for his mendacity, indifference to detail, poor administration, and inveterate betrayal, betrayal of every personal commitment. Yet knowing this, the majority of Conservative MPs and party members still voted for him to be Prime Minister. So essentially, he's saying, we've got to, you know, there's a corrupt, there's a corrupt system there. Uh, and and I, I suspect that Boris will tough this out. There's a couple of things that have come up in the last two days that are quite interesting as well. The Metropolitan Police is now investigating these ridiculous parties, which is still, <laughs> I noticed the Guardian today still call them alleged parties. And it's, you know. Uh, Welcome and, to my alleged party. Yeah, yeah. And of course, there's, there's this, this idea that he was um, um, ambushed by a cake at the party that turned into be his birthday party. But also the cake made me do it. Yeah, there were two memos leaked yesterday by the Foreign Affairs leaked to the Foreign Affairs Committee and published yesterday in Parliament, which suggests that he personally, as we'd also always suspected, um, uh, authorised or approved or in, encouraged the um, airlift of some rather of pets by a rather ridiculous um, British military veteran from Afghanistan at a time when there were and still are thousands of uh, Afghans with mil British military connections and British diplomatic connections who've been unable to get out. And... You know, he denied it. It was completely denied. But in these two memos, it's very clear that he approved it. And what's also weird about it in all of these things is the role of his wife, Carrie. Um, she seems quite involved. And there's, a, there's, definitely a, there's definitely a Macbethian thing going on. Yeah. There. And she's taken over now that Dominic Cummings is, is out. Mind you, Cummings sounds like he's... Cummings, is, Cummings is delivering all of this. It's fabulous. You know, and, and what's also interesting about they may be attacking the BBC, but all of the leaks have come from the Daily, the, the Daily Mirror, the Telegraph, which you know, which is which is sort of theoretically pro Johnson and, and employed him for many years, and, and also ITV. So it's you know, it isn't the, the BBC is carrying the can for it, but hasn't actually broken most of these stories. And it may well kick off this week because the um, report from the um, uh, senior public service, yep. Gray, Sue Gray, is that right? Sue Gray, uh, yes, but yep. it's but it's somewhat superseded by the fact that she's talked to the cops as well. And uh, the the commissioner of the of, of the Met Police has said that her you know, her investigation does not need to wait for the Sue Gray investigation. But it's widely expected that the people who've been interview, interviewed by Sue Gray, whose report only goes to the Prime Minister and may then be released. And I think we know that the Prime Minister is in fact Boris Johnson, so he's he's marking his own homework there. The police investigation may be what catches them up. But it would certainly appear as though he's going to try and tough it out. Yeah. No, no, plenty happening overseas yeah. there. And also in financial markets. Um, you've picked up on a piece that I also picked up on uh, over the last few days by Jeremy Grantham, yeah. who we um, New Zealanders may not know of, but he's, he's a really interesting, uh, experienced and big fund manager who often comes up with unusual positions quite at odds with everyone else in the financial markets and with uh, various people. He he uh, got onto the um, uh, climate change uh, issue very early on and has been warning for quite some time about the bubble developing mm. in asset markets. Well, in the last week, he, he made his call. He said that uh, the US stock market was a super bubble in the same way that we saw super bubbles with the Japanese um, mm. stock and property markets in the late 80s uh, with the dot-com boom and bust in 2000, 2001. Um, you and I, I think, were working together as that one we bust. Were. Yep, yep, <laughs> and, yep, at a dot-com, no less. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, and, and then, of course, the 2008 uh, bursting of the US housing bubble. 
Um, God help us if he ever has a look at the New Zealand housing market, what he thinks right. about that as a bubble. But anyway, and so he came out this week and said, right, now that the Fed looks like it's going to at least try to reduce some of, some of the stimulus, this is going to be the bursting of, of the fourth. For all bubbles, of all fourth, bubbles, yeah. Fourth, fourth super bubble. And um, we saw various uh, huge moves in stock markets as people had another look at this and other predictions, but mainly um, the potential for the Fed mm. to do a lot more hiking of interest rates this year and potentially starting to sell back the bonds that it's been buying uh, $9 trillion worth over the last um, uh, 20 years or so, which is sort of is unthinkable anytime soon. Uh, you know, they've been pouring petrol onto the fire um, for 20 years, and this would be like turning off the petrol and then doing one yeah. of those bombs to put out the fire. Absolutely. You know, I, I got to know Jeremy Grantham for a while because he was he was a contributor to a non-profit that I was doing that ran, did environmental journalism. Right. And he's the founder of a thing called the Grantham Climate Institute at the at Imperial College in London. He's really has put his, put his a huge amount of his personal wealth behind uh, detailed analysis and, and, and um, you know, convincing reporting on climate change. But it, it, the reason I mentioned this, put this in my, in my spin-off thing, and I think it's really interesting, is he, he was talking about this in November, uh, that, that, that there was a bubble and it was a super bubble. But it's this idea that it will spread to all asset classes. Um, yeah. and, and I think you're right, though, Bernard, this combined with Ukraine. And so it's, it, 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 the world reacts to real events in my, in my experience, particularly bond markets and, and non-equities markets. It's when things turn nasty and real that you get these very, very sudden, quite psychological markets. It's not just about being a chartist. And what's interesting here is um, when you look at uh, periods in history before wars, and they have followed periods of globalization. So when you mm. look at the First World War, <clears throat> essentially it was the end of a long period of globalization from about 1850, which was really when the Industrial Revolution got going in Britain and elsewhere, through until 1914, when there was an awful lot of global trade. Uh, the Brits were out there um, doing an awful lot of trading and, and um, uh, creating colonies. And everyone else was getting in on the Empire Building Act. And there were various financial ups and downs in that period. But in that last few months before the beginning of the First World War, financial markets knew there was a real risk of war, mm. but just did not, could not believe that it would ever happen. And so when um, the unthinkable actually did happen, there was a complete rout on financial markets uh, globally. And essentially, um, that, at that shortly after that period, the gold standard was suspended, mm -hmm. and um, uh, the Americans eventually had to get in there and rescue a bunch of banks. Uh, and the only thing that really, you know, got the American economy going again was building lots of weapons to send across yeah. the Atlantic to supply the Brits and a few others. Uh, and uh, I, th I think that's why it's worth talking quite a bit about this uh, war prospect, which a lot of people think, ah, we've been here before, you know, but actually when you listen to the people on the ground, they're saying this is the biggest risk of a, of a conventional and huge conflict on European soil. Yeah, um, and, the and they're coming at the same time. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's well, it's, it's another reason. I just put up a little thing there from the BBC actually, because, funnily enough, I was listening to an excellent analysis and program on the on the gold standard, and we kind of forget how it worked and how it actually, you know, the, 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 there's a reason. There's a reason, um, you know, it's the pound sterling, uh, and uh, it really was as good as as good as gold um, in that in that period. So where that expression, you know, it's as good as gold comes from, because you did have the right to go to the bank, to go to the old lady of Threadneedle Street and exchange your pound for gold. Um, yes. You know, it's it's a very interesting phenomenon. And, you know, as we're, as we're looking at um, cryptocurrencies and so on, and we, and we rethink the principle of fiat, fiat money, which is what we have at the moment. Now, I want to go back to inflation for a minute, Bernard, because you have been a more of a more dovish on inflation because yes. you've, you know... Uh, are you ready to um, be more hawkish now? Are you? No, are you? Are you no. Were you wrong? I can't imagine that um, as a global economy slows down, mm -hmm. and as um, we 
see all sorts of uh, ructions in markets, which uh, slow things down, that inflation continues to take off. There is obviously an issue with energy price inflation. It's not mm -hmm. just these current geopolitical um, issues, but um, essentially the reaction to climate change will have to involve the price of fossil fuels rising. And this is, is happening for other reasons as well, but um, certainly it's happening for the reason that everyone knows that we just have to stop using fossil fuels. Mm. Um, but when you look at how important oil and energy is in the global economy these days, it's not nearly as important as in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And um, we have a much more diversified economy than before. So I don't necessarily think that the energy inflation, which sometimes is connected to the food inflation, is enough to really get us going. The problem uh, in, in New Zealand and other markets uh, where rents, rental growth for housing is at record highs other, elsewhere as well, is simply the rise in house prices mm. and the issues that so many people are having. Oh, and actually, God, Is Colin responding. thinking this is boring now too? Because this is what, you know... <laughs> If we get war, let's go into house prices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so if you have a collapse in asset values, or at least it stops rising, and central banks um, spend the next year putting up interest rates at the same time mm. as there's all sorts of ructions in the global economy and in politics, um, things slow down. They don't speed up. And um, people stop spending, they save. And uh, I think... You're looking at the peak of inflation now, mm -hmm. and in New Zealand, uh, or in, in, New Z in well, either in the December quarter or the March quarter, mm -hmm. and then we're headed back down to two, three percent, particularly as central which, banks, which would fit with the last two years of COVID, right? You know, we're, we're, that that's almost you're almost suggesting there that this this is in part a COVID response, given the the way the economy stayed relatively strong. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So there was a lot of you know money spent on the COVID response, and in in America in particular, there's been a big drop in the workforce. Mm. You know, a lot mm. of people have um, gotten sick and died and stopped working. Whereas in New Zealand, we haven't seen that. So the, mm. there's still a very high participation rate. And one of the reasons for that actually is that um, our pension is not means tested. You get yeah. it whether you work or you don't. Yep. And in America uh, and in other countries where pensions are means tested, um, a lot of people stop work when they hit retirement age mm, uh, mm. and uh, but in New Zealand you can work and get the pension and uh, it's a it's a perfect life so for, for for that reason we don't have the same wage pressures that um, other countries do and also uh, when you look at what's happening with COVID now I'm touching wood as I say this mm. but Delta or for Micah for Micah exactly MDF. Delta yeah. looks like the one that pushes through the last intense wave and then after that, we're at the point where everyone who was going to get it has got it. The rest of us have been triple dosed, at least in the Western world. And um, touch wood, we don't have a nastier um, variant that crops up. So this is quite a, there was a very good, um, I think it was 200 British scientists wrote to Boris Johnson today to say it's all very well to, you know, to, to say that it was madness to lift the various British restrictions at a time when, you know, global vaccination, particularly in the developing world, is still not where it needs to be, because that is presumably, as happened with, with uh, what would appear to have happened with Omicron, given that it was first detected in South Africa, um, the, the, you know, the, the, the risk of further variants is still out there, even though there is this strange potential suppressing effect that, a, that, a, that the growth of a Omicron um, could cause, there is still plenty of scope for further, further. Well, what um, we're seeing is it becoming more infectious, in. but not necessarily more lethal. Yeah. And there's a new version BA2, which I see is out and about, and there's actually um, uh, Ashley Bloomfield said mm. this week was in New Zealand, which is also could be even more infectious than BA1. Mm. But mm. again, um, seems to be less lethal, um, particularly for anyone who's um, has been dosed, uh, triple dosed in particular. And so far, um, we are going to have an awful period in New Zealand in the next couple of months. Mm. And the numbers are, you know, this time next week. So we had 105 new cases today. This time next week, you know, we are in that, we're going to be into the hundreds, if not the thousands. Yeah, but I, I was, sh shall, we, shall we address this politically? I mean, I'm, I'm sure. interested in the cr criticism. I mean, I, I felt we addressed this a little bit last week, and and I think which is our first one coming back from coming back from uh, the summer break. But 
Is it fair to argue that the government has, hasn't prepared for Omicron or is this going exactly the way the government said it would go? And then can we also deal with this issue, this issue of um, commandeering rapid antigen tests, yeah. which I, I thought Ashley, Ashley Bloomfield was really getting into some very dangerous doublespeak on that yesterday. Yes. So this is, A, it was a surprise, and it really threw his minister under the bus in the press conference in that uh, this was an announcement. This wasn't even an announcement. It was something mm. he decided on the spot in a, in a um, discussion with the head of Roche about bringing in these rampant antigen tests. And the way he described it in the press conference was the head of Roche says, said, um, would you like to have priority for these rats? I, um, you can have the ones that were going to go to New Zealand instead yeah. of the companies who had ordered it. And Ashley said, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> and, and then after the fact... Yeah, without all, quite realising that, that, yeah. that it amounted to commandeering yeah. the supplies, and, yeah. And this is one of the issues with Ashley Bloomfield is that... Um, in a way, uh, he is a bit of a Teflon bureaucrat because he has his own power base mm. in that the whole of New Zealand loves him. He's on T-shirts and mugs. And for the government to uh, slap him down or uh, contradict him is quite a diff difficult thing to do. You seem mm. to be flying in the face of science and going against the you know nice, homely technocrat when actually there's a lot of internal criticism, it's criticism Huge. of the Ministry of yep. Health. And um, his leadership has been challenged by a bunch of people, not the least of which is many in the private sector who, you know, uh, have said uh, that the Ministry of Health has been too control freaky about this. Well, and particu that, Particularly about the rapid antigen and saliva PCR, right? Yeah. So the Ministry of Health have been saying for a couple of years now that has been poo-pooing um, rapid antigen tests is not very effective, is not reliable, and you don't want them anywhere near the public. The public shouldn't be allowed to get their hands on them because as soon as they get them, they'll be doing tests and getting freaked out mm. and, and um, going into work when they shouldn't be. And so they've held on to um, very tightly under the control of these things, took a mm. long time for um, the big businesses like Fletcher's and some of the food processes to get their approvals through. And uh, there's a lot of people in the ministry and the government who are worried that if a bunch of independent private companies get their own supply lines of rapid antigen tests, they'll be competing with the Ministry of Health mm. as a you know, supplier of these things and but if those are the but if those are the people trying to keep our supply lines going if it's you know countdown exactly. on foodstuffs and so on yeah the way it's been yeah. handled has been poor so the government should have much better relations with the business community who are going to have to keep those shelves filled and keep and also the keep the hospitals going you remember that um, we think of our hospital system as very much a bit like the NHS and that it's mm. all public and it's all run by public servants well no a lot the of the services a lot of the services Huge. around hospitals are run by um, contractors. Of course, the whole testing and uh, a lot of the um, services around hospitals mm. are run by private companies. Sure, um, they're ultimately paid for by the, by the public, but you can't just you know, issue an order and expect everything to happen. And it also just exposed the fact that the Ministry of Health Put, and the government put all of its eggs in the elimination and the uh, yeah. squashing basket, hmm. not really thinking that they would need to live with it, so to speak, and have the tools that you need to live with it. And in other countries, that means having the rapid antigen tests on the shelves at home, going into the pharmacies, buying them, or in some cases being sent them directly by the government. Yeah, and but the still, whole point of this, isn't it, is, is to be, sorry, Bernard, is to... Uh, be able to track the true spread of, of Omicron in, the, in these initial stages, but then you've got to have the rapid antigen test when the, <coughs> when the existing PCR system, the nasal system, is overrun, right? Yeah. When we, when we are going to have to take much greater individual responsibility for this. And it's going to happen real fast. So uh, even the government is saying we're going to go from phase one, which is now, <laughs> to phase two within a couple of weeks. And from what I'm hearing around Wellington... Um, it's quite possible that we could be jumping to phase two within three or four days. So I just think tell us what phase two again is, Bernard. Phase two work? is where the um, periods of self-isolation for uh, people drops from 14 days mm -hmm. to 10 days. And if you're a contact 
but don't necessarily have it. That drops from 10 days to seven days. Mm. Also, people who are in the essential services can go back to work if they're self-isolating because they were a contact, if they've got a negative rapid antigen test. So that, uh, that implies that when we go to phase two, the essential services will know who they are. I, this is the other thing. In this week's announcement from Aisha Varel, we weren't told which industries and companies were in the special list. Yeah. It's not coming out for another two weeks. <laughs> so, uh, and they're supposed, and they're, be, they're making this up now when we knew Omicron was a real risk in November, December. And that's the criticism from the opposition that the government sort of fell exhausted over the line at the end of December and didn't prepare these Omicron plans through the early weeks of January. Mm -hmm. The Prime Minister pretty clearly said she wanted to let everyone have a break, that, that all the vaccinators were exhausted. And that's true. There are a lot of exhausted people around Wellington as well as the rest of the, rest of the country. But what they've done is relied on the Ministry of Health's instincts to get it right. And the Ministry of Health... Which have not necessarily been perfect. No. And, and the thing is, they, the Ministry of Health and the government to an extent are in this weird position where the strategy they used was spectacularly successful, i.e. stamp it out, the elimination. You know, we have a death rate of 10 per million, whereas in the US and the UK, it's over 2,000 per mm. million. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to throw back at any critics when they say, you know, you haven't done the best possible job. The Ministry of Health and the government can go throw back at you, well, look at the death rate. But we now know that uh, Omicron and Delta are here, and regardless of how successful we were with the previous strategy, it's it gone. doesn't work. Yep. You just have to, you know, give it up, so to speak, and then adjust and pivot. And they mm. haven't pivoted fast enough yet. We may, may, may manage to avoid the absolute worst, if only because our borders have been so tight that the delay has given us just enough time to be uh, boosted and to get the kids vaccinated mm. and to use masks a lot and actually to shut down the borders completely uh, that, you know, maybe we avoid the sorts of, you know, 80,000 cases a day worst scenario that we get. But it's going to be really ugly in the next couple of weeks. And, and I Bernard, think what, sorry, what, what do you make of, you know, Christopher Luxon was criticising Jacinda Ardern for being unprepared, saying private sector needed more exposure to this. And David Seymour has poked his little snout into this and put out a rather gratuitous piece in the Daily Mail, more or less copying a, a, a complete load of old crap from Dan Wotton, the British, the New Zealand oh, journalist. Yeah. But um, I thought, again, David Seymour, just, there's somebody in his office, or it's him, who says silly things and someone is telling them that, that it's absolutely brilliant. So the whole thing about whether whether Clark Gayford should wear, wear a mask while consummating his marriage with Jacinda, which is just utterly gruesome to even think about. You know, where are these guys getting these ideas? And, it, and is it connecting, do you think, politically? Well, yes, uh, I do mean his little snout, actually. Yes, um, okay, yes, please. Thank yes, you. Yes. Um, the... I don't think it is connecting politically uh, yet in a massive way, but it is um, clawing away at Labour's support. And mm. we got the first, you know, uh, big poll out this week of this year. Uh, One News and Kantar came out with their poll results, which didn't show that much of a change between the centre-left and the centre-right vote. Mm -hmm. So effectively, the gap between centre-left and centre-right only squeezed together by two percentage points. Um, Labor dropped a few points. Um, National drop arose a few points, but ACT fell and the Greens were the same. Essentially, it meant that the balance of power between centre-right and centre-left in the parliament hadn't changed much. Yeah. But Jacinda Ardern's popularity as preferred prime minister has dropped to her lowest level ever of 35 points. Mm. Now, that's still double Christopher Luxon, and Luxon is... Uh, and, 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 and Luxon's, of course, is, is actually at least in double digits, unlike his predecessor, yeah. which I, I don't <laughs> think ever was in double digits. Funny enough, I was thinking about her yesterday and thinking, hang on a minute, it's been very quiet without without um, Judith Collins. Judith Collins, yeah. Mm. So so he, he is... I miss her eyebrows. Yeah, they are listening to Christopher Luxon, and he does come across as this, um, you know, successful uh, um, uh, person talking the language of business, mm. which is mm. not the language of politics, which, you know, for a lot of people is quite, mm. is quite encouraging. But um, there is a risk here that uh, he says 
the thing which uh, seems good at the time, but um, when you have to repeat it again and again, doesn't hold up to uh, scrutiny. And um, I think it's going to be uh, a difficult period for both the government and the opposition to, to get the tone right. And um, it'll all depend on, on how successful the next two or three weeks are. Mm -hmm. Because the I think the political mood of the country is quite brittle. And yes, um, for a couple of years now, almost the, um, the government has been on top and uh, people have trusted um, the prime minister. But the longer this closed border goes on, and uh, the longer we're in a position of being quite vulnerable. Uh, and, you know, if we, if we have an awful end to COVID with, you know, thousands of deaths and a hospital system that's overwhelmed and supermarkets that are empty, there'll be some really tough questions about, um, you know, why it took so long to get the vaccines in last year, why we weren't ready with the rats when we had a chance, and, um, uh, you know, it, it will seem like we got the first, we, we had a game of two halves. We got the first half of COVID oh, right in the oh, second half. Oh, a game of two halves. There right. you go. So um, I think the next three or four weeks will be crucial in the government's future. Not that, you know, it's always a, about the political um, ins and outs. Uh, I just think uh, that uh, the government's position is slightly vulnerable and that there is a febrile mood out there where it, you could see five or 10% of the votes switch sides if things go badly um, for the government. And at the moment, uh, people are listening to Luxon and are giving him a chance. So that will be um, interesting to see. What, what do you think? Do, do we need to do better investigations at the moment, Bernard, about the health, you know, the health ministry and about things like... Um, you know the whole the whole DHB thing. We talked about this before, but you know none of this is none of this bodes well for the Andrew Little uh, remake of the health ministry. Yeah, and the DHBs. It's it's, it's going to be a rough um, six twelve months for everyone in those DHBs, particularly when so many people are exhausted. And when the borders open, the recruiters will be coming from Australia and the UK with big checkbooks to those nurses and people in and around hospitals saying. Okay, uh, COVID has swept through in our countries, and we've got plenty of great positions at with high, high wages. And um, oh, I see you don't own a house. Uh, mm. We've got fantastic rents here, and that's uh, one of the risks here. That just as the hospital system is uh, recovering, exhausted from COVID, it then has a uh, organisationally. Yeah. exhausting period and a whole bunch of particularly young people in the big cities who are struggling with um housing costs go ah bugger it i'm off to melbourne and sydney where i can get an apartment that's brand new for four hundred dollars for yeah. a couple of bedrooms and have a great time bernard should we flick to questions and, and things i mean I, oh, I, yes. I haven't really got it the, the skateboarding dog story i was going to do was really the one about the orca whales um organizing themselves to kill uh, and eat blue whales, including the rather remarkable idea that as they're killing it, one of them swims inside the blue whale's, blue whale's mouth to eat its tongue and then swims back out again. Uh, and it's organised by the, by the women of the, the females of the orca pods. So someone a few months ago said, said, was, was talking about rebranding and said the rebranding of uh, killer whales as orcas was one of the finest uh, rebrandings that's ever been, ever been achieved, really. But I thought that was an interesting story. Now, on questions, somebody's asking us about Raf, who we both know a little bit, Raf Munji being the TOP mm. leader. Um, I don't really, like I know I've met Raf. He's an extremely clever chap, highly politically uh, committed, or at least committed to public service. What, what do we think about this TOP thing? I don't, I don't really know much about it. Yeah, I think it's, it's another moment for the Opportunities Party to separate itself from Gareth Morgan and to give itself a new burst of energy and some experience that it hasn't had in the past. Mm. And um, it will be interesting to see how um, RAF uh, connects with the public. He's an interesting character. Again, mm. he's a former investment banker uh, from the UK who says some quite unusual things, but in quite an um, engaging way. 
and um, he's had some success, a couple of terms uh, in the Christchurch Council. Essentially, he was Christchurch's mm -hmm. finance minister for quite some time during the Christchurch rebuild. He's quite a pragmatic uh, character. He works with a lot of people all over the place and is quite deeply connected into uh, New Zealand's mm. um, uh, you know, uh, class of mandarins, and you know he knows where mm. a lot of the bodies are buried, and he's um, he's got some energy, and uh, I think it will be interesting to see how top's got top goes. It's uh, when you look at the polls, they've sort of bumped around one two percent for a long time, but in the last poll they increased from uh, uh, just on one percent to over one and a half percent. And if top were to, you know, get another percent or two on, they get up towards 4% and then people start taking notice. And I think if they do that, particularly now that we've got um, you know, both sides of the government, the Labour and the Greens, have failed on housing affordability and mm -hmm. on climate change. The Greens in particular look utterly useless, like some sort of vestigial tail yeah, it is, it, is, it is really interesting, isn't it? it you know, they, they, well, I, I do think of actually James Watts' name as a bit of a vestigial tale. <laughs> Wiggling a lot, but not yeah. moving the dog at all. Mm, mm. And, and um, this is a problem for the Green Party. And a lot of activists, particularly the young ones, are so frustrated and angry about how um, their leaders have been so quiet through all mm. of this period and allowed Labour to carry on, particularly if people were hopeful that um, the Prime Minister would do what she said when she got them enthused in 2017 and she hasn't. She no. hasn't transformed housing. She hasn't transformed climate change. A lot of the policies, aside from COVID, have appeared to that generation to be performative and um, business as usual, centre-right, neoliberal policies that aren't actually dealing with these issues around housing affordability, climate change, and child poverty, particularly after COVID. I wrote a piece um, this week, which got picked up in a, in a few places. And um, uh, I did an interview for Radio New Zealand with Catherine Ryan on the latest national accounts figures mm -hmm. showing that the wealth of the wealthy in New Zealand uh, in COVID got $952 billion bigger, that um, companies who took $20 billion in cash from the government increased their profits by $15 billion and didn't give it back. And the government, which talks a very good game about being kind, actually um, has allowed our poorest to become more indebted to the MSD and to demand twice as many food parcels as they used to. So this has been a COVID where the rich got much, much richer and Labour allowed the poorer to get even poorer. Yeah, interesting. So we'll have to see what the Gini coefficient, coefficient is going to do next time it's looked at. Yeah, and um, and the the um, leading indicators, if you like, uh, of you know demand for food parcels, mm. um, debt uh, to the MSD, and the sorts of things like the increase in the number of people on the housing waiting list uh, yeah. shows that the government hasn't said what it would. Prom done what it promised and there's a bunch of young activists you know voters who for the first time in their lives believed in something voted for someone watched them in government and thought i've been i've been done like a dinner here who so else what, is top, I vote what for? does top need to do then i mean i i, I don't what what does what does raf manji need to do um i think i think is there a look at the top policies and then connect with these um pretty grumpy people, uh, young people who've been thinking the centre-left things for a while and are mm. feeling disconnected and uh, are hunting around for something to land on. Mm -hmm. And um, we'll see whether he gets connected with that and whether um, those people are still still believing in and do they need to do, do they need to do they i mean obviously they won't stand in seats presumably can they can they be or sorry they do need they need how does it work do they need to stand in both a mix of seats and and have some list people do they didn't i presume they didn't stand in every electorate last time i don't think they did stand in every electorate last mm. time uh the first time i think they might have um, their issue, of course, is that they've never been uh, strong enough in any one electorate to have a chance of getting in and then mm. pulling a few in on their coattails. 
um, it will be interesting to see how they uh, connect up. <laughs> yeah. connect, connect up. Um, connect up with the Maori party. Sorry, I just saw Brett Brett Tumhori's extremely amusing thing. They said that the party of good <laughs> ideas delivered by people so terrible you disagree with them just despite oh, them. Yeah. Yes. Get, I mean, who'd want to be a cat in a yeah. country run by top? Uh, That's right. But but Gareth Morgan's been gone for quite some time now, and um, there there is a a rump of um, enthusiasts in the party who love the policies and have always been frustrated that their leaders perhaps weren't as well known and couldn't explain their policies. And now Raf's there. Uh, he'll, be, he'll get some time on telly. And if they get up towards that 5% mark... So yes, he's very intelligent, media, you're right. Yeah. If, and he's not from the usual... He's not a usual suspect, you know. Yeah. He's, he's, um, and also, there are a lot of migrants in New Zealand. Uh, who uh, have who don't necessarily connect with the super woke uh, green left, but aren't necessarily in love with either the National Party mm. or ACT. Mm. And that's the opportunity for ACT, that they actually present themselves to the centre as a bit more conventional than the Greens and certainly not Labour, and also coming up with some really different policy ideas that are challenging, like, you know, a wealth tax, universal yeah. basic income, these yeah. sorts of things. Bernard, so, I noticed that Darren Fortune asked us a question, which is which which we you, I'd like you to address, but I will just do briefly about whether we've asked anybody to do our Wikipedia pages. And of course, <laughs> uh, I, no, I haven't. Uh, I, I only got a Wikipedia page when I was working for the founder of uh, Wikipedia, Jimmy Wales, and somebody set it up. And of course, it's- Did you ask him, did you ask Jimmy? No, to, but it's, it absolute, it's absolutely verboten to either change your own Wikipedia page or get anybody you know to do it of course there are PR companies that do it for other people and there are a couple of mistakes in mine uh, which I have I have encouraged various people I know who happen to be Wikipedia editors to go in and fix for me but I wouldn't dream of doing that doing what that that person's done yeah no that, that um, was embarrassing and uh, that MP has repeatedly embarrassed mm, mm. the National Party and uh, I suspect she won't get selected again next next year in that particular electorate but um, yeah well I encourage the 80 attendees out there to go out and um, have at it with our Wikipedia yeah. pages. Yeah I, I, I see we've got Brett's also picked up on the vestigial tale which is a, is a fairly obscene it sort of fits with my David David Seymour snout idea. You've got snouts and vestigial tails and various other hideous accoutrements, yes. hideous attachments yes. going on here. Yeah, no, it's been quite a week. And um, just wanted to give everyone an update on uh, the channel um, because we've had quite a, quite a, a couple of weeks of growth. So um, I'm, I'm happy now to put these numbers out there for people just to show that, you know, we're not alone. Uh, the Kaka now has more than 5,600 overall subscribers. So those are people who are on the free list and also who are paid. And of the 5,600 who are on the total list, we now have over 1,300 who are paid subscribers. Fabulous. So this is um, uh, a real thing uh, uh, now, and I'm incredibly uh, appreciative of the support that we've Where's got. Where's my check? <laughs> I knew it was coming. Yeah. I'll get you a gin and tonic whenever. Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, and um, uh, what it's meant is that I can focus um, even more on these areas and uh, uh, look to do as much reporting and analysis. Yeah. and bore Colin to death with with me discussing yeah. Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it matters, and so when the oil price hits a hundred bucks, I'll be able to say, "Here's why." Mm, and it's uh, not boring and, exactly 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 and when people go what is this Donetsk thing did you yeah. hear about yeah. this the other yeah. day yeah. you know um so hopefully that's our our meaning in life is to explain these things um and hopefully uh, keep everyone awake at five o'clock on a Friday. Exactly. Peter, it's wonderful to see you all again. And, uh, and very, very kind of, look, look at all these people. Who, more who's, than 80 who, people today. And, yeah, but uh, people are saying, Bernard, that, that they love you. And we, they support you. It's brilliant. I, <laughs> that's that's nice. And I, I'm i pretty thrilled about them too, I have to say. Yeah. It's, um, it's really, uh, it's really, um, surprising to me and um, well let's not discuss subscription fatigue and also if if people want to tell Bernard particularly what you'd like more or less of oh, yeah. you know, tell him and me j j jump in less, less Peter Bale is probably what they want actually <laughs> I don't 
this has been uh, one of the one of the highlights of the growth of the kaka over the last six to twelve months. Um, a bit of a surprise to me how people are interested in these sorts of things, and also in the podcasts, which have been uh, a, another revelation for me. I'm a text guy, so I don't understand how people can listen to podcasts. But there, um, I've started listening to more podcasts myself. Yeah, I've list, I listen to thousands of the buggers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the way, there I'm going to start listening to Joe Rogan though now, so that I can oh, get rid of my Neil Neil Young collection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, by the way, here's an excellent podcast on the gold standard, which I would recommend. And I think both of us have listened to it. It's the one yes. with Melvin Brand. Yeah, it's very, very good indeed. Yeah. Uh, Kakita right. and all, everyone, have a great weekend. And, uh, and Kia Kaha, Bernard. Yeah. <laughs> See you. Catch Bye. you later. Bye-bye.